James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we know that every single word that you have included in our Bibles has been written so that Christ would be glorified. Every word. And so, Lord, help us to pay attention to every word. And may Christ be glorified even in a little verse like this one. As we study it, as you plant your word deep in us, so that your purposes for us and in us would be met. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Wisdom, James is a book of wisdom, wisdom is not just knowing what to do. Is it? You know that. But is knowing why you do it. So as we turn to the book of James for the next few months, as we take a pause from Genesis we're going to see just that, that this is a book of wisdom where we see how to live as Christians and why. A first glance reading of James, and I know some of you, as, you've, as when we get to a new book of the Bible that we're studying together, you read it and that's good. And a first glance reading of this book, and one of the reasons that makes James so popular is James just tells us bluntly, do this. Don't do this. I shouldn't show favoritism because James says, don't do that. I should, I should control my tongue because James says, do that. I should give to the poor and help widows and orphans because James says, do that. I shouldn't grumble because James says, don't do that. We, we love the simplicity of this book. We love the clarity of the instruction that James gives. But the Christian life is not as easy as saying, I want to do the right thing, is it? Motivation matters. The heart matters. So as we open up the book of James, before I even get to that first verse, I want to offer two words of caution. The first is this. The desire that many of us have to be told what to do so we can do it, that desire can spring out of a legalistic heart, a heart that has not been made new by the Holy Spirit and does not know the grace of Christ. In fact, it is possible to live your entire life going to church following the rules, loving the rules even, and not be a Christian. Not only is it possible, it happens all the time. A legalistic heart is one that is motivated more by rightness than the enjoyment of God. So Sinclair Ferguson says, legalism separates the law of God from the person of God. And this well describes how Jesus speaks of the Pharisees. They know the law, they they live for the law, they obey the law, 
but they do not know that the law flows from the person of God because they do not know God. That's why the second word of caution I want to give you as we open up this book is this. Do not focus so much, and here's a rule, isn't it? But do not focus so much on the rules that we will see in James that you overlook what James tells us about God. In fact, what we're going to see is that everything that James teaches us about how to live is really showing us how to live as people transformed by the gospel, how to live as a people who are under the gracious rule of Jesus, our King. Every single instruction that he gives us in this letter is grounded in the character and in the nature of God himself. And that's why James is instructing us in wisdom. This is wisdom as a genre. Wisdom is not just knowing what to do, but knowing why you do it. And the answer to the why question that we'll see as we study James together is simply this, because God. Live in humility because God is eternal and you are not. Live in thankfulness because God is the source of all good things. Do not show partiality to the rich because God has chosen the poor to be rich in the kingdom. Do not curse another human because God has made them in his likeness. The the instruction that we are going to read as we study James together is not arbitrary. They're not just rules. It is wisdom rooted in the nature and the character of God. Wisdom comes from God. Seeking wisdom, then, is first looking to the Lord, delighting in the Lord, loving the Lord, meditating on the Lord, and most of all, seeing Christ as our Redeemer and the radiance and the glory of God, the exact imprints of His nature, and then seeing how His nature and character are embedded in the instruction that we'll read in James. And the the effect of this is that we will love what is written here for the right reasons. Not because we love rightness, but because this letter comes from the Savior that we love, through the Spirit whom we love, to the Apostle James whom Christ loves, to the church who Christ loves, to a people, us, who are loved by our Savior. And that is the lens that we must have as we look to James when we study this book. And I will repeat that every Sunday as often as I need to because we will forget it. Why? Because our hearts love law. A Welsh pastor I I listened to, he's Baptist. It's okay, he's Baptist, Welsh pastor, older guy, Jeff Thomas. He said for a long time in his church, he avoided preaching the book of James. He was there decades before he preached the book of James because James presumes that the reader has a knowledge of the gospel. And Pastor Thomas said when he first got to his church, he wasn't sure that the people had a saving knowledge of the gospel. So he would not preach this book. So he spent years and years teaching the gospel, ensuring that in every way his people knew Christ in a saving way, before they studied James. Why? Because legalism is so real and so much a part of our heart's longing that if we read James without the foundation that it is written upon, 
we can misread it and misuse it. So, so just as a good range instructor reminds the line of gun safety every time, when they go to the range, I will remind you of our need to see Christ before the law every time we open up this book together throughout this series, okay? So there's our two words of caution. Now let's open up the book. Let's look at verse one together. James, comma, all right, who's James? Let's stop there. In the New Testament church, we have two options, two Jameses to consider. The first James that we see in the New Testament is one of the sons of thunder. James, the brother of John, son of Zebedee. Both John and James were, were disciples of Jesus called very, very early on in his ministry. But that James was killed at the hands of Herod in Acts chapter 12. And you can go back and read Acts 12 and, and read about that. In, that's in the, the infancy of the church. And that is before this letter was written. So that martyrdom of James Thunder would exclude him from being the author of the letter of James. But there's another James in the, in the New Testament. James, the son of Joseph, the brother of Jesus. This James is traditionally known as James the Just. So you have James Thunder and James the Just because of his role in, in adjudicating the, the, uh, the circumcision dispute in Acts 15. So you go Acts 12, you see the martyrdom of the other James, and then a few chapters later, Acts 15, the gospel is beginning to spread beyond Jerusalem, out into Samaria, out into the nations. And this question arises as to whether circumcision is required for new Gentile believers. So the church in Antioch, which is a, a, a predominantly Gentile church, they send elders from their church along with the apostles Paul and Barnabas. And those elders and Paul and Barnabas bring the issue south down to Jerusalem to bring it before the apostles and the elders of the church in Jerusalem, the first church council. Paul who is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, makes the case for the full inclusion of these new Gentile believers. And he makes the argument that the law has been fulfilled. And then Peter, who is sort of the spokesman for the 12, the 12 original disciples, he publicly takes Paul's side. He agrees with Paul. And so then you have, so you have the, the, the church in Antioch represented. You have the disciples who are represented, and then they all turn to James to see what he will say. And James, it seems, from, from Acts 15, it seems that James is, is sort of the senior pastor of the Jerusalem church. And he stands up, and he speaks the consensus view of the entire church council. Everyone is there. And because James the just is a leader in this church, and he's so well-respected, when he speaks, everyone else listens. It seems to be definitive. And this is the James who wrote the book of James that we're studying. Now, we don't know exactly when this James became a Christian. We, we don't know when he came to believe that Jesus, his older brother, was also his king and his God, the Savior of the world. We, we don't know for certain, but I will tell you this much based on just a, 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 a good reading of the New Testament we know that this James didn't likely become a Christian while Jesus 
still lived before, well, let's say before his crucifixion, because he still lives. So James, this James, James the Just, did not become a Christian before the crucifixion, before the cross. There's two reasons why I make this argument. The first is that when you read the Gospels, and all the Gospels have an account of this, Jesus' mother and brothers come to Jesus when he's teaching in Galilee, and they want to speak to him. And, and the, the, the gist of what's happening there is they want Jesus to stop teaching, stop saying he's the Messiah. And Jesus sees his mother and brothers outside the house, sees that they have interrupted his, his, his mission, and he, and he looks to all the followers who are in the house with him, and he says, these are my mother and brothers. In other words, not them. And the implication there is that because Mary and her sons, Jesus' brothers, don't yet see the truth, they, they're not Christians, right? They're trying to stop Jesus from telling everyone he's the Messiah. So then Jesus redefines at that moment what it means to be a family. And he's saying, I am more closely related to these followers of mine than I am those people that I grew up with which is deeply, deeply insulting to Jesus' mother and brothers, and yet it reveals probably where James's faith is at that point, right? He's not in Christ yet. The second reason I don't believe James followed Jesus before the crucifixion is because of that scene at the cross between Jesus and Mary and John. Remember that scene? Apparently, Mary has become a believer at this point, and Jesus wants to make sure that she is taken care of. And it's in John chapter 19 where we find this, and I'll read it for you. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Now, If Mary's son, James, had been a follower of Christ at this point, the adoption scene would not have been necessary. But as it was on that Good Friday, Jesus saw that it was better for another church member to care for Mary than for Mary's biological son, James, to care for her once Jesus was gone. There's something to that, isn't there? Something about the, the relationship that we have as church members that is stronger. How, how many of you older folks feel more at home with church members than you do with your unbelieving grown-up sons and daughters? Jesus knows that reality, and he, he cares for his mother with that reality in mind. But James did come to Christ. He wrote the letter, after all, and he came to believe after the resurrection. The evidence we have for this is in 1 Corinthians 15. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7, uh, a few verses that we repeat a lot, or at least I repeat a lot in preaching. Very central to the New Testament message. Paul says to the Corinthian church, For I delivered to you as of first importance... What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. So there's the crucifixion. That he was buried, 
that he was raised on the third day, there's the resurrection, in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. So this James, here in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, is not James, the son of Zebedee, the disciple, because that James is among the 12. Right? So Jesus appeared to Peter, and then the 12, that's when that James, son of Zebedee, saw Jesus. But then he appears to another James, after he appears to the 12 and to the 500. And it is this James that is the same as the one who wrote the letter of James. And it is this appearance of Christ that I believe converted him. No longer could James see his brother as a mere man. But because of the resurrection, James had to believe that his brother was and is the Messiah. So so with that in mind, I just want to pause here and remind you of the centrality of the resurrection. We need to do this occasionally, don't we? Frequently. The centrality of the resurrection of Christ to our message. So Del Sarah, listen, it's not enough to teach Jesus' teachings. James heard Jesus' teachings, and he was not convinced. It is not enough to see Jesus' compassion. James witnessed Jesus' compassion, and he was not moved. It is not enough to see Jesus' miracles. Certainly, James saw the miracles, but hundreds and hundreds of people saw the miracles, and they did not believe. But no one has ever been crucified for claiming to be God and then risen from the grave on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. That unique claim only belongs to Jesus. The the resurrection vindicated Jesus' claim to be the Messiah. It was Jesus' resurrection that made James a believer. So for any who might argue that Jesus was not physically raised from the grave, just think about this. Why would his brother, who previously had given him grief for claiming to be the Messiah, why would his brother suddenly begin to proclaim that Jesus is Lord? If Jesus still lies in the grave, then it would behoove James to simply say, I told you so. He was just a man and a lunatic of a man at that. Jesus' death would have affirmed James's previous beliefs, right? And we like to be right about things. We like to be proven right. But Jesus' resurrection would have proven James wrong. And we all know how much we hate to be wrong. And yet James repented of his wrongness and became a follower of his own brother, a prominent follower of Christ, a leader of the church in Jerusalem, the author of this letter, this letter that was distributed to Christians all over the Roman Empire. James, this James, even became a martyr for the name of Christ. Church history tells us that the high priest in Jerusalem rounded up a number of, of prominent, the most prominent Christians in Jerusalem and had them stoned in 62 AD. Why would he go through that? When he could have just said, yeah, I was right, and they just had it over with. Why did he go through that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? 
It's not worth the trouble. He could have, James could have continued to be a law-abiding Jew, but he risked his life to proclaim the resurrection of Christ and the new life that Christ gives. So that's James. Praise God, he has been saved. That's James, brother of Jesus by birth, brother of Jesus by the new birth as well. Not many have that claim. Pastor of the Jerusalem church, apostle by way of seeing the resurrected Christ. That's what earns you that title, apostle. You've seen the resurrected Christ. So I want you to look now, now that we know who James is, I want you to look now at the second clause, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's begin with that word servant. What does it mean to be a servant of God? When, when we think servant, we think of our recent context in, in, in history. Not many of us can afford servants these days. But, but some people have a maid or a cook or someone who helps with the laundry or someone who helps on the farm. Those are just those are servants. But the servant of the Lord is different. This is, a, this is a technical term, an office, if you will, in the Scriptures. The servant of the Lord in biblical theology has a, is a big story to it. The first place we see someone called a servant of God or a servant of the Lord is with James's namesake, which is Jacob in Hebrew. So in, in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob prays for deliverance from, from Esau and tells the Lord, I am your servant. And then the next servant of the Lord is Moses. And then Joshua is a servant of the Lord. And after that, David not, not all Jews are called servants of the Lord. These particular uh, called Jews, these chosen guys, prophets, kings, they are servants of the Lord. A servant of the Lord in the Old Testament is someone who is chosen by God to be a representative of God's people. So the prophets are called servants of God. Israel as a nation is called God's servant. In Isaiah 53, this is where things get interesting. This is one of our Good Friday passages that we love. In Isaiah 53, the servant of the Lord is the one who suffers death in exchange for Israel. In the New Testament, we learn that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies and all of those types who are the servant of the Lord. He is the, capital T, capital H, capital E. He's the servant of the Lord. We see that fulfilled in the book of Acts. He's often called the servant of the Lord Jesus. That's how they describe him. The apostles describe Jesus that way, looking back at Isaiah, looking back at those, those previous servants of the Lord. In other words, to be the servant of the Lord is not just a generic description of what one does. The servant of the Lord is an office held by prophets and kings, all in anticipation of the servant, the Messiah. So after Jesus, after the Messiah arrives, we see the language change in the New Testament. The true servant of the Lord has already come. He's come to restore mankind to God. He's the king of the kingdom of heaven. He's the king of the new creation. And this king, who is also God, has servants. So in the New Testament, where we see servants of Christ, we see those guys described in the same way that we saw prophets in the Old Testament leading up to Christ. 
So Paul calls himself one of these servants of the king, servants of Christ. Oftentimes you you read Paul's letters and he'll begin by saying, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Jude does this. Peter does this. James is doing the same thing here. So, So if you think of the phrase, servant of the Lord in the Bible, think of it like a a single mountain peak, okay? So on the one side, you have Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Joshua and the prophets going up the hill, and then at the peak, you have Jesus, who is the servant of the Lord, but he's also the Lord. So on the other side of the mountain, the new covenant side, you have the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament who are servants of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and that's how they describe themselves. This is why James says he's a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a double meaning. The Lord Jesus Christ is God. So when James serves the Lord Jesus Christ, he's serving God. But the way he's written this, it also has the meaning that the Lord Jesus Christ is distinct from the Father. So so if if you're curious... How it is that Christians began to understand that God is three in one? The idea was not invented in the fifth century by conspiracy theorists controlled by a power-hungry emperor to make interesting movies in the 21st century. The, The eternal truth that the Son is God, the Father is God, and the Spirit is God, but the Son is not the Father or the Spirit, this is found all over the place in the New Testament. But it is especially found in these greetings. So don't overlook these greetings in the epistles. So we're making some progress here. We know who James is. We know what it means that he serves Jesus as both God and King. Now, who are the 12 tribes? James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Well, in the Old Testament, the 12 tribes would clearly be a reference to Israel, right? The the 12 tribes, the the, the sons of, of Jacob, the sons of Israel who make up tribes. So with language like to the 12 tribes and the dispersion, if you were reading this, you might think, well, this is written by an Old Testament prophet to God's people who are in Assyria or Babylon waiting to come back to Israel to rebuild the temple. But this letter is not written in 300 B.C. It's probably written closer to 60 A.D., and it's written to the church. The Christ has been born. He's lived. He was crucified. He's risen from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And James is writing to a people whose faith is in that Christ and who are waiting for the return of Christ. That's essentially what James is about, how to live waiting for the return of Christ. This is a letter for the church. So why does James use Old Testament language about Israel as a description for the church? Well, for us, when we think about who Jesus Christ is, I would say we have a minimalist view. Not all of you, not all of us, but it's common to have a minimalist view of of what it means that Jesus is the Christ. I don't know if that's because we try to get the entire gospel story into a a three-page tract, or or if it has to do with our modern habits of ignoring the Old Testament. 
But regardless, sometimes when we say what it means that Jesus is the Messiah, all we're saying is that he's a guy who died for our sins. And it, it's true. He, absolutely true. He did die for our sins. But a statement like that would be heard by James as an incomplete gospel. The cross is, is still central for James, but it is a central part to a much larger story than the one that we often tell. The Messiah that the Jews were waiting for was to be a king who would reunite and restore the 12 tribes of Israel. That was their hope. You see, see the, the old nation of Israel as one kingdom was not one kingdom very long. They had Saul, and then David, and then Solomon, and then they fractured, and they stayed fractured all the way through exile, all the way to the return from exile. That, that, that when you read the Gospels and you get this, this sense that the, the Jews have vitriol for the, for the Samaritans, that's, that's a continued part of that fractured kingdom story. The hope of the Messiah... The hope that the Jews had of the Messiah was that he would come and he, and he would cast out the pride. He would cast out the, the idolatry that had destroyed the nation. He would bring the nation to repentance. He would reunite God's people in worship to the Lord. He would bring them back into the land of promise. The land would again be a place of fertile abundance. And he would rule in peace as the nations came to pay homage to the great king and worship God in the temple. Jeremiah puts it this way. Jeremiah chapter 3. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it. Jeremiah 3, 17 and 18 if you're taking notes. At that time, talking about the time of Messiah, at that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord and all the nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem. And they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. In those days, the house of Judah shall join the house of Israel. That's the two kingdoms, the two nations becoming one again. The 12 tribes will be one again. House of Judah shall join the house of Israel. Together, they shall come from the land of the north to the land that I gave your fathers for a heritage. So that's the Jewish hope of the Messiah. That's what the prophets said they should be looking for. And when that happens, they would say the gospel has arrived. That'd be the gospel for them. And here's how Isaiah puts it. Isaiah 49, if you're taking notes. Isaiah 49, 5 and 6. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. That's the 12 tribes of Israel gathered to Messiah. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. So there you see servant of the Lord language, right? The... Uh, the Lord formed me from the womb to be his servant, the servant of the Lord language. That's Messiah language. It's pointing to Jesus. The servant has been sent by God to bring Israel back, to, to gather the tribes in. What was scattered by exile is gathered by Messiah, the one who was honored by the Lord. But then Messiah says in Isaiah 49, 6, that's not all I came to do. He says, is it too light a thing? that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Israel and to bring back the preserved of Israel, so to, to regather them? He says this, I will make you as a light for the nations, 
that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So there you have the the restoration of the 12 tribes, but the light to the nations. And, and, And the way that Isaiah puts it, he seems to imply that it's not so much that the nations are coming to the land, but the salvation is going out to them. So if we combine Isaiah's prophecy with Jeremiah's prophecy, the holy city of the temple, Jerusalem, is going out to the nations. The presence of God is going out to the nations. And the great mystery that the prophets didn't understand is how would this work? How is Jerusalem a city that covers the entire earth? How is it that the restoration of the 12 tribes under Messiah's reign and the restoration of true worship in the age of Messiah would work to make both Jerusalem the central place of worship and to take the salvation that Messiah brings to the end of the earth? The mystery revealed is the church. I want you to think back to our last four Sundays. The church is, remember from 1 Peter, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that ye may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What Peter's doing is adopting how Moses describes Israel to describe the church, because Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all that Israel was meant to be. He is the true Israel, and he's the head of the church. And the church is in Christ. And the church is also, as we saw last week and the week before, the earthly temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, the earthly presence of the heavenly Jerusalem. So here's what James is doing. When he writes to the church and says, you are the 12 tribes He's acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, whom the people of God are united under and in. When he says you are the 12 tribes of the dispersion, that means you are dispersed throughout the world to, as Isaiah says, bring salvation to the nations. And the word choice that James uses here is so important. It has a this, this dispersion word, this is another one of his double meanings. Dispersion, the first meaning is in agricultural terms. Dispersion is from the Greek, diaspora. You've heard of the diaspora before. It literally describes how, how seeds are dispersed in a field. Think of that root word spora, spore. Right? Seeds are spores. Diaspora is related to the word which means to sow seeds, to scatter seeds. So think of it this way. Again, back to our study on the church. You are the holy nation, the 12 tribes, dispersed like seeds throughout the field of the earth. And you will take root, and you will grow, and you will bear fruit for the kingdom. And your growth in Christ will bring glory to Christ. So in the sense of the church as a light to the nations, this is how we do it. This is how we're a light to the nations. We're scattered throughout the world, and wherever we are, we are the the people of the presence of God to the nations because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and the righteousness of God is seen in us. 
And that is one very, very important element of what is going on in the book of James. What we're going to see, James connects his instruction to the nature and character of God in Christ, and then he instructs us in how to live that the righteousness of Christ would be seen in us. So this way of living that is content and joyful and thankful, this this way that that cares for orphans and widows and those who are in need, this, this way of being a prayerful people, a humble people who live exalting Christ, expecting Christ, this is the way of the scattered seed that brings forth fruits of righteousness which result in praise for God from among the nations. But, but dispersion, the dispersion, has another lexical sense as well. This is the, the language, the diaspora is the language that was used by the Old Testament prophets to describe God's people awaiting their return to the land of promise. So they're waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled so they can go back. So, so when Israel was in Babylon and Assyria and Egypt, and they're just kind of all over the world, when they had been exiled from Jerusalem, they were said to be the dispersion. In its noun form, the dispersion describes a people who live in places that are not their true home. This is also true of the church. And we will see this theme in James. We are not home. You are dispersed. You are the diaspora. California is not our home. The United States is not our home. This world is not our home. We live here in much the same way that Abraham lived in the land of Canaan. He was a stranger awaiting God's promises. We live here the same way that the Israelites lived in Babylon. We live as a people awaiting the Messiah. Paul says to the Philippians, our citizenship is not in heaven, is, is, is in heaven, in, is in heaven, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, Jesus Christ. Hebrews says, here we have no lasting city, but we await the city that is to come. And, and Peter, in, that, in the same breath, when he says we're a chosen race, a holy nation, he says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. He's saying, you're sojourners, you're you're exiles. This isn't your home. You don't belong here, out out there. Do you believe that? This is not our home. Do Do you live like that? You know that right now you are closer to home gathered together as the body of Christ than you are when you're sitting on your couch watching the Padres. As fun as that is. You're more home here. You're, you're, you're closer to, to an idea of what your true home is here. It's a strange reality, isn't it? But it is the Christian reality. So not, not only is is the instruction in James how to live as scattered seed, which brings forth fruit. We're also going to see in James how we are to live as sojourners, strangers, exiles, aliens, the diaspora, people who are waiting for their true home. The final word that we see here is the word greetings. 
And the word that James has chosen for this greeting means literally rejoice or be glad. It's a happy greeting, a, a warm greeting. And it's one that, that, that also communicates to the audience. It's the word that he's chosen is one that says, we're at peace with one another. I miss you and I long to see you, but we have reason for joy right now. That's that, that one little word. You know how one word says a lot, doesn't it? In other words, the, the word that he chooses to greet this church, these churches, is a greeting that a Christian can use with a full heart. We have reason for joy. We're not home yet, but we're already at home in Christ. Though Christ is not returned, we already have the peace of his presence through the Spirit. We have reason to be joyful as we live dispersed throughout the world to show the glory of Christ to the nations. Amen.